Welcome to Culture Factor. I'm your producer and host, Holly Shannon. Our new season looks at creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Why? Because the creator and gig economy is emerging. Talent has gone to work for themselves. The new year starts with the 101, or the beginner guide, for NFTs, blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and all those metaverse and Web3 topics we keep hearing about. We are all going back to school on Culture Factor to understand this decentralized economy. From creator coins to the tax implications of selling crypto, let's unpack these emerging technologies in really simple terms. Join me and feel free to send in your questions. Would your brand like to sponsor Culture Factor? It is your opportunity to be a part of a podcast that is ranked in the top 2% globally and heard in over 89 countries. Email holly at hollyshannon.com. Subscribe to Culture Factor and share with a friend now. Okay, let's start with our class. Let's get our next guest on. So Vladislav Ginsberg, who goes by Vlad for me, because like I'm a friend now, (laughs) is the chief executive officer at Block Party. Ginsberg leads Block Party and the mission to build a blockchain agnostic platform for collectible, collectible NFTs at the intersection of art, music, and culture. Block Party launched their MVP in August 2020 with a number of mainstream-oriented drops, including first digital artworks by Blau Slime, Slime Sunday, Adventure Club, Dave Krugman, and others. Earlier, Ginsburg was Chief Business Development Officer at Block Party Tickets, where he introduced blockchain as an NFT-powered ticketing system to music festivals and professional sports teams, including a partnership with the Sacramento Kings of the NBA. Before entering blockchain and entertainment spaces, Ginsburg managed a fine art fund where he transacted more than $150 million in blue chip artworks. Ginsburg studied at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, as well as the New School in New York. So originally what I planned for this podcast, my friends, but let me, I'll go there, but let me introduce. Hello and welcome to Culture Factor, Vlad. Hello, and thank you so much for having me, Holly. It was uh, such a pleasure to meet you in person in Austin when we crossed paths at South by Southwest. And I was immediately like, oh, this is somebody I could talk to. Because uh, right right when we met, um, I immediately got a sense that um, you you were asking the right questions and thinking about things the right way. And uh, the opportunity to appear on your podcast and appear on The Culture Factor is one I would have missed. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That is the nicest greeting I've gotten yet. (laughs) So, you know, I wanted initially to to dig into your background a little bit because, um, you know, we talk about NFTs as artists and creators, and you have such a strong background in art and um and then you sort of took it into blue chip so can i actually make you go back a little and explain a little bit about your background in art sure um and and i, I would love to uh where do i begin <laughs> um, it's um it's fun because i i got into the art uh industry um and the art business really in the in about 2009 2010 at a time where I really was intending to find a job on Wall Street. I, um, I was interested in a career in finance and, you know, 20, 2009, not really the best time to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, right. You know, Everything crashed then. 
That's right. And so coming out of uh, undergrad at the time, uh, that was a murky path. And yet, as much as that was a murky time in global finance, I'm looking southbound in Manhattan at Wall Street about how to get into finance, and that's problematic. But uptown in Manhattan at Sotheby's, they're setting records for most expensive paintings ever sold. So I'd love to say that I'm like a market-making genius. I'm absolutely not. I'm just like, all right, well, the sixth train going northbound is they're setting <laughs> records, and the sixth train going southbound, uh, people are getting laid off. You're so very I'm observant. Gonna take, <laughs> so I'm going to take the train north. And, uh, and I, you know, and I wanted to learn about the art world and I wanted to learn about, you know, what is going on here that a Warhol just sold for 96 million, that a Picasso just sold for 104 million. And uh, I started working closely with um, uh, various auction houses, just kind of offering uh, work wherever I could offer it and learn wherever I can learn. And eventually I started to see art, uh, blue chip artwork, which I would define as um, in a million ways, but as a finance writing person, I think the trigger point for me was quarter million dollars and up. Uh, if an artist, either a piece that is a quarter, that is over a quarter million dollars or an artist, which is very many that have pieces for sale for under a quarter million dollars, but have made over a quarter million for their highest price. And I was really trying to break down the art market into charts and, uh, and data at a time where a lot of people in that industry were telling me, you can't do that. And um, I was saying, well, yes, you can. Because mm -hmm. some of these things, because this is a market and markets have trends and markets have data. And we, um, and what's wrong with people enjoying the art for its beauty, but also thinking about these things as investable assets. And the, the deeper I dug, the more that became clear to me the way that auctions work and how things like minimum guarantees and lending um, impacts this world and liquidity and uh, the more I learned about it the more I saw a clear path there so the tra traditionally speaking there are three great reasons why art isn't considered an investable asset sure it's an asset that appreciates it can appreciate but it's but there's but there are traditionally three reasons why collectors are encouraged not to think of it that way. And the first is lack of liquidity. Uh, the second is um, that these are assets that can be damaged, broken, you know, lost in the fire. They're, you know, and, um, and, they're, sub and uh, they're sort of subjective. There's too high of a subjective uh, value to this stuff. You know, what one person says is a you know, million dollar painting, somebody else says it's a hundred thousand dollar painting. And um, all of the, you know, all of these reasons I felt maybe were great reasons when they were conceived, like as recently as the 80s and the 90s. But in, but once I was really like in that business in the early part of the 2010s, like 2011, 2012, the world had changed. At that point, every major auction house was offering online bidding with a live stream in the auction room. And the with like rules and protocols for 
you know, online bids and in-person bids, et cetera. So if every auction house is offering this and I can, I, I don't have to leave New York to bid in an auction in London, Paris, Hong Kong, wherever, then I'm also looking at the calendar and between Sotheby's, Christie's, Phillips, all of these auction houses, Bonhams, and they're all online. Well, you're never more than two weeks away from a major auction. So once the internet had its impact on that business, suddenly art felt more liquid than housing. And nobody says that housing uh, or real estate isn't an investable asset um, because I can buy, and, I, and, and truly a lot of the art dealers in New York were buying something during a day sale and flipping it two weeks later you know, at, a, at another auction somewhere else. Uh, Paddle 8. Uh, was an online-only auction house for blue chip artworks that popped up overnight, taking advantage of this like uh, ability to bid online. So the liquidity factor for me was solved. Uh, number two, you know, it's not that subjective with art, right? When you look at an auction catalog, they give you a low estimate and a high estimate. So the auction house actually is telling you this Picasso, this Warhol, this Herring, this whatever is um is this is the range for it and to me that's all just data high estimate low estimate where it actually lands and now i'm sitting around charting how are certain artworks performing versus their estimates and you know and things like that um at the time in 2010 notably the warhol foundation the basquiat foundation the herring foundation they all kind of started throwing their hands up and saying we can't tell real from fake anymore and a lot of procrastinators, a lot, so like they stopped issuing certificates of authenticity. And a lot of prognosticators back then were like, well, that's the end of the art world. You know, nobody can tell you what's real and what's not real. Um, I guess, what does it all mean? And what we observed was the opposite, which was actually when there isn't a central authority that manages what's real and not real. Well, actually, in that case, uh, um, in lieu of authenticity, provenance is key. And so now there's a new there's there's a new piece of data to look at a, the value of a painting, a Picasso with rock solid. Well, Picasso doesn't count because that's French law, and actually they do have authenticity rules. But let's say a Warhol, right? A Warhol with a rock solid provenance is more valuable now than the same Warhol with a murky provenance. And you can start really charting this data and you can start really measuring the impact. And um, it sort of became, you know, the big auction houses sort of became the arbiters of what is real and not real. Why would Sotheby's, why would Christie's take this painting and, and, and offer it for sale if it wasn't legit? So it actually had this, um, it also had this like um, impact where auction houses vacuumed up more volume from private dealers. And because it was, it was clear that, about the provenance there and all auction data is published onto, uh, onto databases. So art, things like ArtNet, you can just quickly um, at, with a database, look up all the auction results in the world because uh, it's all public data. And that was the third thing about why art is an investable which is price discovery. You know, on Wall Street, you have lots of great price discovery. In real estate, you have lots of great price discovery. You know what things cost, you compare them. 
again, the internet had this huge impact where suddenly all public, all public auction data could live in a data database and more works are going to auction. So, um, the time was, uh, the time was right to get in there and start evaluating artwork as an investable asset. Um, and one of the great successes we had along the way was, um, identifying inefficiencies of like, I'll use Dali as an example. With Salvador Dali, there are eras that are considered more desirable than others. Uh, for example, Dali uh, beyond 1960 uh, was considered maybe less desirable. He's older, he's interested in, he's a celebrity now, he's interested in, you know, politics and you know, all these other things and you know his hands are maybe a little bit shaky and the, and the work isn't as strong as like the melting clocks of the 30s and that's commonly accepted taste and um in, in the dali market but the data says otherwise the data is showing us that the desirable era the 1930s are getting so expensive that the billionaires are pushing out the millionaires into early and late and you're kind of seeing for every you know at the more prices peak in the 30s you're seeing prices kind of sneak up in the 60s and we're asking why is that happening and the answer was well people are selling like longtime dali holders are selling in the 30s and they're making profits that they're applying towards more affordable works that are still important and um the signal for the collectors i was advising was buy low, buy in the 60s, take advantage of uh, a seller in the 60s that's not looking at the data. Mm -hmm. And um, and then after a major sale where a bunch of things sell for many millions in the 30s, go find the go find the sellers. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that was um, that was the adventure back then. And that was still at the time considered well, you shouldn't treat art that way. It shouldn't be a promissory note. It should be about the culture. And it's funny now that NFTs are so front and center because now that's such a commonly accepted thing, right? That's such a common... And now the big auction houses are all involved in NFTs and it's all about flipping and it's all about, you know, floor price and what's the, you know, and and all this stuff. So um, it's funny to be reliving that experience now with NFTs, but have it be so commonly accepted well history repeats itself right and, sure and web3 really is um not exactly web3 it's um it still has roots in web2 in a lot of ways um and what's interesting what you said about the um the millionaires you know buying up these other pieces i think also it's um, trying to be seen as so they see these billionaires have these really high ticket ones and they're taking the fringe the millionaires want to be seen in the same pool as the billionaires they'll even buy those maybe less attractive lower priced pieces of art just to say that they swim in the same pool sure um, I think there's definitely some of that in art I think you know what's the real estate um, equivalent here you know you're supposed to buy a less good property in the A plus neighborhood than the best property in, you know, in a lower tier neighborhood. Right. 
because you want, you know, you want to be in that zip code, you want to be in that area. And I think we see that in art a little bit as well, Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And I think we see that in um, contemporary art, especially. That's a really good point. um, I would say, yeah, thank you. I would say (laughs) that uh, with NFTs as well, um, there is a lot of web two in in web three. Uh, There's also, there's also a lot of web one in web three. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that web, web one was, you know, search and uh and email but at the time uh and search and email are the tools of web one that persist today but also web one you know that was a time where when the world was trying to figure out email and the world was trying to figure out all this stuff and um you know the we were it wasn't taken for granted that everybody has a smartphone and everybody has a computer in fact home computer penetration was like the big metric you know uh back when um, that was the internet was still a place for like fringe creators to get up and spin up a website and do interesting things online and build communities. Mm-hmm. And I think what Web two did was, in you know, the, the the age of social media, the platform was king. You want you know you want you know we kind of centralized uh, all this content onto places like Facebook, on places like Instagram, et cetera, and platform was king in web two this might sound counterintuitive from the ceo of a platform web three but platform is no longer king right we're back to the creators we're back to technologists on the fringe experimenting and creating things and building communities around them um in fact i think that um web three is a great idea i think it's a great catch-all term for all the things going around uh right now but the ultimate endpoint of Web3 is decentralization. So it's a counterintuitive thing. Again, like me, the CEO of a platform, it's a bit of a counterintuitive place to be when if Web3 is all about decentralization, if Web3 is all about disintermediating between creator and collector, then aren't we the platforms effectively working to disintermediate ourselves out of the equation? And so uh, because there are a lot of platforms here, I tend to think of where we are right now as like web two and a half. We're all talking about web three. We all want to get there. But I think we're at web two and a half at the moment. Mm. You know, I think uh, it's funny because I just had this conversation. um, I don't know if it was on my last podcast or if someone was interviewing me, but I feel that the strengths of Web One are going to be um, pivotal in Web Three and that it's going to be a really... um, good time for us to get back to like for web one for me i think of like uh businesses building and being front facing with their customers and building community and connecting and interacting and and learning about each other and i feel like in web two we got away from that you know it's kind of like let me just show you my shiniest moment on instagram and it's not real necessarily because we're not really interacting with our community. And I feel like Web3 
it's almost like this aha as we come out of the pandemic, like we really need each other. Holy shit, this is really, uh, you know, just showing everything on Instagram or whatever, my flashiest moment, you know, it it gets old, you know, and uh, it, it broke down a lot of people, you know, we had a lot of mental health issues, like people just, it's not reality and you're not really talking with people and you're not interacting with them. And I feel like there's going to be, if we're smart in web three, we're actually going to go back to like what our grandparents and our parents did in web one mm -hmm. really well. You know, if you look at that ground, uh, you know, like building the church community or building, you know, um, clubs and, and things where people like really feel like they're a part of something and that they feel like they're really building something together. I feel like there's, we could learn a lot from each other if we sort of almost don't even look at web two so much. We look at like what worked then and not try and reinvent the wheel. That is such a great point. That is, um, that is such a great point because like many others in web three, I have, I go home for Thanksgiving. I go home for the holidays. I check in with mom and you know, uh, I, I get a lot of questions. Like, I don't understand this web three stuff. And, and I'm, and I want to be like, yes, you do. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. You, you were do the understand. originator. You were the originator, right? Your grassroots right. little club that you made, right? That um, like whenever I hear somebody say, well, my age or older saying, well, I don't understand MetaMask wallets. And I'm like, well, yeah, there's a learning curve, sure. But remember in the 90s, the first time you used PayPal? Mm. Uh, or the first time that you bought on eBay and you bought a P2P from, mm -hmm. uh, from somebody, remember Napster, you know, or remember all that stuff? Like, we're just, we're, we're, we're there again. And, um, and you make a really interesting point. Uh, about the web two fatigue and the way that we present a glossier version of ourselves. And so I, I heard somebody, um, I was at the Bitcoin conference in Miami in June of 2021. And it was the first time I heard this idea. And it really struck me as, you know, as if I need to be validated any further about NFTs. But the, uh, the idea that was shared with me by, uh, by a very intelligent gentleman was that the lives we live on Instagram and on Facebook, you know, we communicate our names, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Vladislav Ginsburg, you're Holly Shannon. People see us, um, our, our information is out there. And so the content that we put out there is, um, a glossy version of ourselves. I venture to say that the version of me on my Instagram is a carefully curated and pretty version of my life. Yeah, we're all guilty and, of it. Of course. And so for somebody, a marketer, for example, interested in learning about me would have a pretty, let's go back to the idea of data, right? Noisy data versus clean data. If you look at my Instagram, hoping to get data about me, you'd get the basics. Right. But, you know, you could tell that I'm pretty family oriented. I got my wife, and my kid, and I, and I work in a blockchain company and all that stuff. But I would argue that it's pretty noisy data about what my interests are and what I, you know, and what my day to day is like. Con contrast that with my crypto wallet, with my NFT wallet that I use to buy things on Block Party, 
because I'm a company man, or um, you know, or OpenSea or any of the other platforms. Now, even though my Ethereum wallet is anonymous, it's a zero X string of numbers. Nobody looking at my wallet knows that it's my wallet, mm-hmm. nor is any, or knows anything about me. Mm-hmm. I As bet you, you that, right? I bet you that person would have a much cleaner idea of my interests, the types of music I listen to, the types of art that I like, the types of online communities I belong to. Um, you know, the po- you know, the po-ops I've collected, where I've been, what kind of events I go to. That's brilliant. Uh, I, um, yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, and so I would ask one of your listeners, you know, the marketers of your listeners to think about that idea. Would you rather, what data would you rather use to market to me? Not knowing anything about my demographics, but knowing what my online habits are or having all of my demographics but having a carefully curated picture of my life that I want you to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and that's, um, I don't have the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, and like I say, I, I mean, I'm sure you have listeners that are much smarter marketers than I, uh, that, you know, could ponder that question and opine on it. I, I kind of think that the wallet address is the new digital real estate, you know? Well, sure. There's definitely people that are buying up ENS domains to squat on them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a thing, but um, it, but it matters, right? It matters because um, I think that login with wallet is certainly growing in popularity relative to login with email. You know, it's not mainstream yet, but the numbers are indicative of where we're going. And there's a certain there's a certain authenticity to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough in web two, sorry, in web two, you can say I'm an expert in something and you can print up a business card and you can post yourself at a bunch of conferences, you know, put expert in whatever in, in your bio and you can live a life on social media. That's not really real. I don't care what anybody in Web3 puts in their bio or their profile. If somebody comes to me and says, I'm an expert in NFTs, let's see your wallet. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what NFTs yeah. have you bought? What NFTs are you collecting? I, I, don't, I don't need to see a million dollar board ape to feel that somebody's an expert. But if you pop up in my wallet, you'll see NFTs going back to early 2018. You know, so at least when I at least when I say that I've been in the space for a while, I can I can I can, I can demonstrate that. But um, there's a certain there's a certain truth and transparency. I'm often asked, "Does my business need a podcast?" My answer is yes. That nothing else is the fast track into thought leadership and being established and seen as the expert in your industry as podcasting. What's increasingly evident is that it's a branding machine. It kicks doors open for you to have conversations with leaders. It creates a pathway to partnerships and connections on a deeper level. You will not be your industry's best kept secret. Your ideas and business will have global reach. So step into your power. Go to hollyshannon.com to launch your podcast now. And now back to our interview. Forgive me for getting into the spirit of Passover a little bit as, as we're recording. 
But um, you know, I, I, another thing that I that struck me as interesting when you were speaking about um, Web two and the Web two fatigue is the other side of what you were saying. You specifically mentioned about folks in Web three reconnecting with behaviors of Web one, even prior to Web one, grassroots community building, and. With Web two, you know, it's like everybody's coming onto Facebook. Uh, Facebook would, if it was a nation state, would be the, you know, I think would be the second most populous country in the world. Um, I love that. Generally speaking, very broadly speaking, the United States government has is not really that afraid of crypto. Right, they struggled to understand it for a while, but once they got their heads wrapped around it, and they did, they were just like, "All right, well, you know, pay your taxes, don't launder money, and have fun, you crazy kids." You know, <laughs> when Facebook announced Libra, that's when their ears perked up.、Mm-hmm. That was like, "Oh wait, Facebook's got you know, Facebook accounts are from Facebook wallets. Now we've got now we've got a, now we've got a, a challenger." Mm-hmm. That's what you know. That got shut down pretty quick, if you recall. Mm-hmm. I do recall. So, so Facebook is this kind of like almost, and I bring up religion and pastor and all that. It's kind of this like Tower of Babel, right?、Mm-hmm. It's like everybody come to this town square that's happening all at once, and in a lot of ways, Web three is a rejection of that idea,、mm-hmm. right? Web three is a rejection of hey, everybody be on Facebook, and、mm-hmm. and now it's hey, everybody build your own communities around your interests.、Mm-hmm. And it's、um, and I think it is this almost like human urge to connect with people that are like minded that that are、um, that are、uh, interested in the same things and、uh, grassroots building community. So I think that's、um, that's the exciting thing about Web three. And then the challenge of Web three then is going back to our role as a platform. Is well, can we build something that is able to serve various communities for you know somebody to come take some take some code and build something around themselves? That is a challenge. I think you can probably solve for it, though.、Um, I so you bring me to code. So so let's、um, dig into block party a little bit, if you don't mind. I'm going to switch ever so slightly. So you're a no code platform,、um, is that what I understand? And I, you know when I go on your platform, I feel like it's a it's a variety of things. I feel like it's a place for the artist to almost have a website or their portfolio live. It's a place that they can build on and feature their work, kind of like an open sea or a rare ball. Um, but they also don't need to have a developer behind them. They could be like a one of one artist and just kind of starting out and not feel like they have to have a whole dev team, you know, just to actually be in this whole world.、Um, I feel as though from your ticketing background that you're also creating、um, or laying the groundwork for artists to. Um, be able to create experiences for their communities in the future、um, that you maybe might be 
creating that infrastructure like maybe you did and then you backed off of it like you you had said earlier and, and now maybe you're going to be thinking about it again so this is kind of the vision i get when i look at block party but i would like to hear from you like the inspiration behind it what you think it offers artists because um you know that's just like my vision when i look at it you're very astute uh you're picking up everything we're putting down um the ticketing days are interesting because we it was my intention to maintain the brand i think we built a great brand um and i think we built a lot of great um roots in the industry i think uh, the folks that we work with recognize us for being around early and so we wanted to maintain continuity with the block party brand um but we did sunset ticketing operations towards the end of 2019. Um, and I began rebuilding the platform to serve creators. I think I did that for a lot of reasons, but one of the things I learned from the ticketing space is in, two, in 2018, we were putting NFTs in the hands of music fans, um, not crypto enthusiasts, not you know technologists, people trying to go see a concert. And um, that was a really great lesson. And, you know, you want to maintain your passion as an entrepreneur, you want to maintain the passion for what we're building and what the value is, while also learning to meet the customer where they are. And when the best example I can provide is standing at the gate of a music festival, that block party got the ticket and being, you know, my heart being full that 5,000 fans are about to come into this venue with NFT tickets. We did it. Holly, these fans were pissed. <laughs> they were pissed. Why? They were like, because they, nobody understood what a gas fee was. Um, and you know, we wanted to have one ticket in one wallet because one token in one wallet and music fans buy tickets in pairs and in, uh, or in fours or in sixes and they come with their friends and somebody buys the four tickets and pays with and the friends pay them back in Venmo and they like share the tickets and they're like, wait a minute, I bought four tickets, but I have, but it's one wallet, one ticket. And why do I have to pay this gas fee every time I send send a token to somebody else? And at the gate, when we're scanning the QR codes and we're waiting for Ethereum confirmations, and now the line is backed up forever because that's a slow process. And venues aren't, and music festivals especially, aren't known for like their superior internet connectivity. And so- <laughs> yeah. um, Or have so, bathrooms like, at that long line for as well. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was, it was Miami in September of 2018. So you could better believe how hot it was and humid. And, and so I'm like doing cartwheels. I'm like NFTs. And people are like, can I just please get in the venue and miss the headliner? Mm. And, and so if I, I believe very strongly that NFTs are the mass adoption event of cryptocurrency and blockchain. Mm -hmm. And that's a great beautiful thing to say that sounds great right back in the days when it was mining and bitcoin and this was 
still like a bridge too far for the mainstream. NFTs are an opportunity for the musicians, the artists, the creators of culture to leverage the blockchain to their audiences and their communities. It's a beautiful thing that sounds really nice to say that NFTs are the mass adoption of the blockchain, but then you got to do it. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then, and if, and if you're going to do it, you've got to meet the customer where they are. And the customer does not know what a gas fee is. The customer is, there's a learning curve. And, um, you know, you lose a lot of, you lose a lot of folks when you start saying things like decentralization, stuff like that, even though it's incredibly important. So when, when we set out to rebuild Block Party into an NFT platform for creators, we said to ourselves, okay, we're going to make this no code. We're going to make this email login. We're going to enable users to pay with credit card and with crypto. And um, everybody gets a Block Party account. And then once you buy something, go ahead and connect your MetaMask if you have one. Go ahead and connect your decentralized wallet if you have one and withdraw your with NFT. And the idea was to make it as user-friendly as humanly possible while still maintaining important elements of Web3. And I think that what a lot of our perspective there, the no code is informed by ticketing experience because this is for a, um, this is for a mass adoption event. What we've learned since I would say, and what's really driving our ethos now, and you pointed it out very well, this is a place where an artist, a creator, can come and like set up their website and start running their NFT commerce is we realized that we were actually facing a very different challenge than making this easy. What we realized was this is going to sound kind of dumb, but sometimes, you know, the dumbest things are the most profound. Creators are really effing creative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the questions we're answering aren't, how do I make this easier to purchase for my fans? The questions we're answering is, here's my creative vision. How can the blockchain, how can NFTs accommodate it? Mm. Um, so and so today- were much deeper. They were going much deeper with you than yeah, you were giving and, them credit for. Yeah, more. Um, we were thinking about how to make this easy for everyone, and we were surprised, pleasantly surprised. I can say I'm very pleasantly surprised by this. <laughs> the two things that we're getting from creators are not make this easier for my customers. The two things we're getting from creators, this makes one thing makes me happy. One thing makes me like really happy. The thing that makes me happy is creators are constantly asking us to push and innovate with them. This is my art. This is my music. This is my vision. Can you, they don't want to put it into a five. Sorry. Many are perfectly happy to put it onto a JPEG or to put it onto an MP4 or to put it in a, in a, in a file and put it on chain, but very many are confined by that and they want to push it further and their desire to push further has caused us to meet them where they are and us to innovate alongside with some of these very innovative creators. Uh, so that makes me happy. Uh, we get to innovate. Uh, the thing that makes me happier 
very many artists are skipping right past make it easy to purchase and heading toward there they are learning and understanding blockchain very quickly and the artist that we speak to that doesn't get it six months later is demanding their own smart contract hmm. they're doing the homework. and uh, they're doing the homework and the learning curve is not as steep as we anticipated in, at the end of 2019 so um block party is thinking about things a little bit differently in 2022 we're not thinking about how do we make this so easy any web 2 user can use it although we still i think carry that ethos right we don't want to make it so complex that people don't know how to buy stuff um but are the challenges we choose to face are um what can we learn by co-creating with the most innovative creators out there and then how can we take those learnings and apply that ip to a greater market of creators that maybe aren't like thinking aren't like creative coders aren't thinking about pushing the boundaries but are themselves creators and now they have more robust tools mm -hmm. since we learn from the innovators now we can provide more robust tooling to um to a greater sect of artists and it's led to some innovations that i'm really proud of uh number one um our physical digital app right we work with a lot of painters photographers and we celebrate that the digitally native artists are the pioneers of this space and the first big winners. And by the way, Holly, you asked me about my art background. I can tell you that I've been involved with a lot of high profile sales of Dali works and, you know, and Andy Warhol's. And I keep using these two artists as my examples because uh, they're very relevant in the NFT space. Both Salvador Dali and Andy Warhol were experimenting with digital art. Um, hmm. later on in their careers. And sure, that stuff is on display at the museum retrospective of their careers, but it's not traditionally very expensive relative to their other works. It's in fact really considered non-collectible um, because how do you package it? And so suddenly you have these things. So the digitally native artists uh, are being celebrated and that was the first wave. So we talk to a lot of artists that are interested in making NFTs, but they're painters. Their vocation is painting. Their vocation is sculpture. Mm -hmm. Their vocation is photography. And we are not, oops, we are not, um, uh, we're not saying that you must be suddenly a digital artist to succeed NFTs. We're, we're saying, why not both? Why not, why not the painters explore the digital side? Um, and so what, so we've met so many of these creators and we ended up with a mobile app that is able to tie a physical object to a NFT in a meaningful way, right? Because I think a lot of, you see some experimentations with putting QR codes on a physical object or putting an NFC chip on a physical object or trying to meaningfully tie it together. Well, we decided to use um, AR and image recognition. So we work with a partner that's a specialist in image recognition. And now when a creator wants to mint an NFT, but have it be tied to, let's say, their painting, 
So like there's a, the NFT might be a digital animation of the subject of their painting. They'll go and they'll set up the NFT on block party site and upload the media, upload all the metadata, and then they can click attach physical object. That'll kick them over to our app, which will use the camera of your phone to scan the surface of the painting. And much like when you set up your iPhone, it will scan your face mm -hmm, for a password. Mm -hmm. And it'll take that scan and it'll break it down into code. And it will hash that right into the metadata of uh, the NFT. And so now these things are tied together. So now maybe I buy your, maybe Holly, you're the painter. I buy your NFT and you ship me the painting. I can now take the app and scan the painting and I'll get a message that, yes, this is in fact the same painting that is tied to the NFT. Ah. And so now in the secondary market, there's your provenance, solving, right? There's your provenance. We're, uh, we're provenance thinkers. Our, um, and by the way, our, our head of product, um, our senior vice president at Block Party and our head of product, Jacqueline O'Neill, uh, this is really her pet project. Mm -hmm. um, before Block Party, um, she, an artist in her own right, a very talented painter in her own right, she was she founded something called the Blockchain Art Collective before uh, back in 2017. And so she was working on how to meaningfully tie physical artwork to, to the digital space way before Block Party. So this app is not, you know, this app is really a uh, bringing to life of her passion and by the way, before she joined Block Party, I was so stricken by her art. I I'm a collector, so I bought I uh, my wife and I commissioned a painting of hers, and she is a mixed media artist, right? She's a painter, she's a photographer, and she is somebody that is really taking advantage of her own creation. So she's making um, these digital artworks that are tagalongs to her paintings, and they're really supposed to be one artwork together, and um, this is, you know, like I said, this is uh, this innovation is us meeting the creators where they are and trying to serve their needs. And I think that's um, that's why you so profoundly hit the nail on the head with what we hope it to be, right? We hope to be a place where creators can set up their website, their storefront, and allow their creativity to flow into the Web3 space. This conversation is jam-packed and will continue as part two. So please subscribe and share this now so we continue this class together. Mm -hmm.